Hands of My Podcast is a proud member of DarkCast Network, presenting the brightest of indie podcasts. Hey to all my seasoned and newbie listeners. March has been claimed on my podcast to be the month of matrimony mayhem because I'm getting married. That's right. So for the rest of March will be the podcast takeovers from the Darkcast Network community of indie podcasts. I have handpicked some fucking fantastic podcasts and their hosts. Isn't that they're saying something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue? Anyways, I started off with Beyond the Rainbow, aka Rainbow Crimes, is a show about crimes committed by and against the LGBTQ community. Hosted by CJ, goes by pronouns she, her. She has been a fan of true crime stories for a long time, but have only discovered true crime podcasts within the last three years. So, join CJ for an array of true crime stories from all over the world, especially lesser known cases. And I love her tagline, remember, it's not a crime to be gay unless you're a murderer. Hey, 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 Rainbow Warriors. This is my disclaimer. Beyond the Rainbow is a true crime podcast. It's not suitable for young children, and maybe not even for some adults. I tend to swear like a sailor, and I'm kind of proud of that. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. Welcome to Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBT. I'm your host, CJ. Please follow me on Twitter at Rainbow Crimes, Instagram at Beyond the Rainbow Pod, or Rainbow Crimes, because I accidentally have two accounts, and Facebook at Beyond the Rainbow Pod. Also check out my website at beyondtherainbowpodcast.com. Okay, with that part out of the way, let's talk about this episode's missing but not forgotten LGBTQ person. And yet again, we find ourselves with a missing LGBTQ person that has so much backstory, it could be an episode all on its own. In fact, there have been other podcasts that have devoted an entire episode to this person. The person I'm speaking of is Caitlin Aikens. Caitlin was just 19 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was living with her fiancé, Amber, in Phoenix, Arizona, but she traveled back home to Virginia because her older sister, Gabby, had just had a baby, and Caitlin just couldn't wait to meet her new nephew. Her trip was supposed to be from December 1st through December 5th because Caitlin had to get back to Phoenix as she was starting cosmetology school on December 7th. Caitlin was apparently very excited to be starting cosmetology school as well. Caitlin's physical description is that she's a Caucasian woman. She stands 5'4 and weighs about 120 pounds. She's naturally blonde, but since she is interested in cosmetology type stuff, her hair often gets dyed pink, purple, blue, you know. She has blue eyes and wears glasses or contacts. 
She has a tattoo of five black butterflies on her left forearm. She also has a tattoo of five stars on the top of one of her feet. Caitlin also has several piercings, one in her nose, one in her navel, and one on the right side of her lower lip. She also has small gauge-type piercings in her ears. Caitlin flew into the Ronald Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. on December 1st, 2015. As I said, she was there to take a short trip to visit her mom and sister Gabby and her brand new baby nephew. Caitlin's family lived about 20 minutes away from the airport in Springfield, Virginia. While Caitlin was there, her family said she was in really good spirits and she wanted to stay longer, but because of school, she was due back in Arizona. On the night of December 4th, which was the night prior to her leaving, Caitlin went to visit with some friends from high school. There were two of them, actually, and they were a couple, a male and a female. After the three did some heavy drinking, it seems that the three young adults became sexually active with one another. The following day, a guy that Caitlin knew that they had texted every day because they were really good friends, well, she texted him and she told him about the threesome that had occurred the night before. She said she felt very coerced into the sex act. And I tell you this, Rainbow Warriors, not to be judgy, but because I want you to know we aren't sure where Caitlin's head was that next day, the day she was supposed to fly home to Phoenix. I mean, was she feeling guilty because she cheated on Amber? Was she angry at herself? Maybe she was starting to feel cold feet. We just don't know. There's a lot of variables that are unknown in this case. What we do know is the day Caitlin was supposed to fly out of Washington, D.C., her mom was not able to get her to the airport. Her mom had to work. Her sister Gabby wasn't available to take her either. But she did something she didn't really want to do. As a last resort, Caitlin's mom contacted her ex-husband, James Branton. She asked him if he would drop Caitlin off at the airport. James had been Caitlin's stepfather for quite a few years. He helped raise her, and he lived about an hour and a half away from the airport. James agreed to take Caitlin, but he asked if it was okay if he dropped Caitlin off a little early at the airport because he had to be at work at 3 p.m. Caitlin's flight was like right around 5.45 p.m. And of course, Caitlin said, sure, that was fine, as long as she could get a ride. So the morning of the flight, Caitlin's mom drove Caitlin to James's house, and she stayed with her for a while. She stayed with her till about 9.30 a.m., and then she had to leave to get to work for the day. From here on out, no one but James Branton knows exactly what transpired the next few hours. Amber in Phoenix, Arizona, Caitlin's fiancé, did receive a text from Caitlin's phone. This came in right before noon. The text said, Something came up. I'm not coming back today. I'll let you know when I get a new flight. I won't be able to text for a bit. At 1.52 p.m., James texted Caitlin's mom. He told her he had dropped Caitlin off. Eight minutes later, a text from Caitlin's phone went to Caitlin's mom. The text read, I'm here at the airport, battery dying, so I won't be able to text for a bit. After assuming that James had dropped Caitlin off at the airport, 
He said he dropped her at the Springfield Mall, which is about 10 minutes from the airport. He said she wanted to kill some time at the mall before her flight, and she would take the metro over to the airport when it was time. Now, this all seems to be a very reasonable, logical story, except there's no camera footage of James's vehicle ever entering the mall or the airport. Later, James said that he actually dropped her at the metro, but there's no camera footage of Caitlin there either. After the text from Caitlin's phone to Caitlin's mother about being at the airport, Amber got a hold of Caitlin's mom. She asked Caitlin's mom if she had heard if there were any problems with Caitlin's flight, and she told her about the weird message she received. This information from Amber totally confused Caitlin's mom, and she started to worry and tried to call Caitlin, but the calls went straight to voicemail, as if Caitlin's phone had died or had been turned off. Nearly two hours after Caitlin's plane had taken off, Caitlin's mom received two texts from Caitlin's phone. And you might be wondering why I'm saying Caitlin's phone. The reason I'm saying it is because we're not sure these texts were from Caitlin, but they did come from her phone. The first of the two texts said, I'm staying with a friend. And the next text said, I need some time alone. Caitlin's mom texted her back three times. The first one, Call me. The second one. I'm worried about you. And the third one. Please call me. Nothing has been heard of from Caitlin's phone since, but several hours after Caitlin's phone had last texted Caitlin's mom, Amber in Arizona received a message through Facebook Messenger. It was on Caitlin's account. The message read, I can't come back. I cheated on you. Two days after Caitlin had disappeared, her small suitcase was found by a road crew in a drainage ditch off of Interstate 95, near her former stepfather's home. The suitcase contained Caitlin's wallet, which had her credit cards, her ID, and her cash, her plane ticket, her glasses, and her phone charger. The things that were missing were her clothes, her phone, and her diploma that she had grabbed because she needed it for cosmetology school. James Branton stuck to the story about dropping Caitlin off. He agreed to a polygraph, but then he lawyered up and he shut the polygraph down. In the beginning, he was very cooperative with police, but then he stopped being so. James Branton never went on any of the searches for Caitlin, nor did he ever try to call her or text her when she first disappeared. There's a couple theories about him. The first is that he might have tried to put sexual advance moves on Caitlin, and she resisted, so he got angry and he killed her. Another theory is that she wanted to disappear and start a new life. She felt bad about her threesome and cheating on Amber, and maybe she wasn't living the life she wanted to live. So James assisted her to escape. Either way, it's pretty apparent from his lack of helping look for her, this guy knows more than he's said. Incidentally, remember James needed to drop Caitlin off early so he could get to work by 3 p.m.? James never went to work that day. As for Caitlin's cell phone, when her phone texted her mother saying she was at the airport, her phone pinged 30 minutes away from the supposed metro station she was dropped at. When Caitlin's mom called James, his phone pinged closer to his house. 
and the very last text sent from Caitlin's phone, the one that said she needed time alone, well, that phone call pinged about 15 miles from where her suitcase was found. Police got a warrant to search James's house, and they confiscated a number of things, even his phone, which had a high-security encryption on it, one that James actually built himself and refused to give the password for. James is kind of a technology wizard. No one seems to be able to hack the encryption code he created. And apparently there wasn't enough evidence that was collected at his place that implicated him in any wrongdoing. But what really begs the question here is why would somebody take Caitlin's clothes, but not her cash? There's just so many mysteries surrounding this case. If you or someone you know might have information on missing Caitlin Aikens, please call Spotsylvania County Sheriff's Office at area code 540-582-7115. I'll leave that information in the show notes. Sixteen-year-old Fred C. Martinez, who went by FC, was known in Navajo culture as a Natalihi, a two-spirits. More simply put, a male-bodied person with a feminine nature. Also a Natalihi could be a female-bodied person with a masculine nature. To many non-Native Americans, we might identify a Natalihi, a two-spirit, as a transgender, but we'd be kind of incorrect in that, and I'll explain more on that later. I've read conflicting reports that Fred identified as a gay male. Another report said that Fred was trans. I'm going to refer to Fred as she in this episode because another report I saw interviewed Fred's best friend, and she referred to Fred as a she. Usually, a bestie is who knows you the most. Even though Fred went by FC, she really loved to be called Beyonce. According to Navajo culture, to be a two-spirit is a great gift. In fact, many indigenous people, not just Navajo, hold two-spirit people in great esteem as more spiritually gifted. Two spirits are often looked upon as spiritual leaders and teachers. Rather than focusing on the human body, a person's spirit or the character is what is important. More humans could really take a note or two from that indigenous belief. Now, Fred had her share of bullies, but she was confident enough in herself to wear headbands and pink nail polish and eyeliner to school. She even wore jelly sandals. Some of the kids called her ugly, and they asked why she looked and acted like a girl when she was a boy. Her best friend, a girl her age, wanted to say something to those kids, but Fred would stop her and say, No, no, it's okay. It's just words. Fred was often sent home by the school administration for wearing the eyeliner or the jelly shoes, and sometimes Fred would even be sent home for wearing a bra stuffed with tissue. Fred stood six feet tall and weighed around 200 pounds. Though large in stature, Fred embraced a very feminine spirit. On June 16, 2001, Fred went to the Ute Mountain Rodeo Roundup. 
This is a big whoop-de-doo for Cortez, Colorado, every single year. But no wonder it's a big whoop-de-doo. There's a parade, a carnival, fireworks, all of this on top of the rodeo. It sounds like a blast. And what seemed like it was going to be a great night of fun for Fred was anything but that. It was horrific, terrifying, and tragic. Upon leaving the carnival that night, Fred went to an after-party at someone's house. When it was time for Fred to leave the party, she started to walk home and was approached by a car holding three other young people. They were Melissa Sharnhorn, Clint Sanchez, and Sean Murphy. They asked Fred if she needed a ride home. Fred accepted and got in. On the way towards Fred's house, the car full of young people stopped at a convenience store. Fred decided to go ahead and walk the rest of the way home from there because it wasn't too far. The other three ran into the store, got what they needed, and quickly were back at the car. It was now a quick drive to Melissa's apartment from the store. On the way back to the apartment, Clint asked Melissa and Sean if maybe Fred thought Sean and Clint were gay. It was an odd question, and one that must have went unanswered when they got back to the apartment. Sean told Melissa and Clint he was heading out to go see if he could score a joint or two to smoke. And while he was out, he crossed paths again with Fred. A verbal altercation ensued, and I can only imagine it was about sexual orientation. Even though Fred towered over Sean in height and weight, Sean scared Fred, enough so that Fred ran from Sean. Sean chased Fred to an area called the Pits. It's a rocky, desolate area teens like to go and party at. But this night, no one was there other than Fred and Sean. In the dark, with nothing but the light from the stars to guide her way, Fred stumbled into a barbed wire fence that sliced into her stomach and wrists. Even with the searing pain from the barbed wire, Fred managed to run another quarter of a mile with Sean in hot pursuit. Fred reached a rock wall and she tried to climb up on it, only to be bashed in the back of her head by a large rock. She fell to the ground. After a severe beating, another rock was smashed into Fred's head. All went quiet, except for the gravelly footsteps of the killer walking away. The following morning, Fred's mom made a missing persons report on Fred, and she called the police the next day and the day after that, and the day after that. She called every day until Fred's body was discovered by two children at the bottom of a shallow canyon partially obscured by bushes five days later. By this time, Fred's body had succumbed to the elements. It was badly decomposed. Fred's identity could only be confirmed using dental records. The night Fred was murdered, Sean arrived back at Melissa's apartment. The clothing he had on was blood-soaked. He told his friends he left someone lying at the bottom of the pit. He said, a bug smashed a fag. Not, call 911, I hurt someone. And even hearing any of this, Melissa or Clint could have called. Or they could have said, hey, well, let's go back and see if they're okay. But no. Not one of the three had an iota of decency or morals to give a fuck about anyone else but themselves. 
It seemed that Sean was very proud of himself for what he did to Fred. He continued to brag to his friends about killing a fag. Finally, one of Sean's friends came forward, because on July 9th, after his relentless bravado about killing a faggot, police got wind of Sean's boasting, and they arrested him. He was charged with second-degree murder and sentenced for 16 to 48 years. This case was not tried as a hate crime, in spite of Sean Murphy's derogatory gay remarks about Fred. It would seem that Sean's own mother is a lesbian, and Sean has at least one or two uncles that are gay. Sean's mom said she raised him with tolerance at a young age, and he has no hate towards the LGBTQ community. Well, if that's really the case, why was he so fucking proud of himself for taking Fred's life? And why was he so focused on telling everyone he killed a faggot? Sean was released in 2018 at the age of 36. He now lives in Greeley, Colorado. Had Fred still been alive today, she would have been 34. And who knows what she could have become given the opportunity. Sean only served 16 years for taking the life of a 16-year-old child. That's one year for every year Fred was alive. Doesn't sound like justice to me. Sean is still young enough to go out and enjoy himself and live a life of promise, but that choice was taken from Fred at Sean's hands. Doesn't seem right. After Fred's death, her mom, Paula Mitchell, took to the streets of her town to make sure kids were getting home safe. She helped many of them get bicycles of their own to be able to get home quicker and safer. Paula also became a huge advocate for LGBTQ and Two Spirits. In 2009, a documentary was made called Two Spirits. The film explores a cultural context of Two Spirits, and it focuses on Fred F.C. Martinez's life. Two Spirits have been around in Native American culture for many generations and the term even predates the LGBTQ terminology. Because an indigenous person might be homosexual or bisexual, this does not make them a two-spirit. However, a two-spirit person can be gay or bisexual. Two-spirit is about the embodiment of having both genders reside in one person. And like I mentioned earlier about many who are not Native American feel like two-spirit is the same as a trans person, Realistically, it's not. A trans person is someone who might be born male, but they feel female all the time, and it's uncomfortable in the body they're born into. The same would go for someone born female in gender, but they feel like they're a man. A two-spirit can live as comfortably born a female in gender as they are born a male, and that's because they feel like they are both genders. I sure hope I didn't confuse anyone any further. Much love, my Rainbow Warriors. And remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer.